0: Hi I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property or at least as much as we can squeeze into this half hour program. It's lovely to have your company today. We're going to start off a little bit with local news that's been housing news that's been in in the papers and so forth and then we're going to move on to a little bit more national uh, just to see where we get to. Later on we'll talk a little bit about landlords and tenants as well. The first thing to, that I noticed this week was an article by Paul Mitchell that says Manawatu-Wanganui housing affordability plummets 30%. It says that the affordability of Manawatu-Wanganui homes is plummeting as falling wages and soaring prices make it harder than ever to get on the property ladder. Massey University's latest home affordability report showed the region's affordability fell 30% since last June and only Gisborne slipped further with a 31% drop. High demand and short supply also saw house prices shoot up by roughly the same percentage over those 12 months. Massey Professor Graham Squires said that it was combined with a surprisingly steep drop in the region's average wages. He said counter to what you would expect when the unemployment rate was low, the average wages fell in most of the country. The Central Economic Development Agency reports that Manutu's unemployment rate is under the national rate at 4%, but despite that, the region saw the biggest drop in average wages, which fell 11.8% from $1,268 per week to $1,118 per week over the first quarter of 2021. Squires said that didn't even show the full effect falling wages were likely to have on affordability since inflation was forecast to rise going forwards. He says that that will probably compound the problem and people's real wages, that is their spending power, will fall even faster. And the national figures also indicated a dramatic separation between prices and wages, Squires said. New Zealand's house price to income ratio was 8.9 two years ago and now prices were 12.4 times the average. And the outlook wasn't favourable for buyers on the house price side of the equation either. Quotable Values property consultant Jason Hockley said Palmerston North house prices had a period of stability with little change month to month for three months before taking off again in June. QV statistics have shown that Palmerston North houses sold for a median price of $688,000 last month, a 35% increase from last June and 6% more than May. So it's interesting to see that the prices did stall slightly but then have carried on going up. In other news from this area of green space battle memories rekindled by sports field use review. Now what on earth does that headline mean? Well, sports fields and reserves will be considered in Palmers North's search for more land for housing within the existing urban area. It is an idea which has horrified several city councillors, especially those who endured the 2013 public backlash against a review of the council's property portfolio. Councillor Lorna Johnson said the review was one of the triggers that prompted her to stand for election and Councillor Lou Findlay said if the council really wanted to upset people threatening to sell off green space would do it. The proposal to look at whether underused reserves and sports fields could be better used to help ease the housing crisis emerged from a housing, uh, council housing capacity assessment. Acting City Planning Manager Michael Dundam said several greenfields rezoning plans were underway but there was still potential for more infill and intensive housing. But there were also opportunities to look at sports fields and reserves to see whether they were in the right places and providing the best use of land to meet varied community needs. Much of the land they occupied was little used outside weekend sports and in the winter they were often closed because of drainage issues. There were also issues about whether they were the right kind of grounds, with many sports groups calling for all more all-weather playing surfaces and covered facilities in the city. Those calls could be answered if all-weather purpose-built facilities were set up on the outskirts of the city where the land was cheaper, releasing central city land for housing. David Murphy said it was about making sure the city was using all of its resources the best way to achieve a range of goals, increasing housing supply while also cutting carbon emissions by reducing the distances people had to travel from home to work and education and services. Our recommendation is to investigate the option rather than give the green light to act, said Doindam. The council's already working through process to to see if it can use the unoccupied bowling club land at Terrace End and on the corner of Park Road and Fitzherbert Ave for housing. Now that's been going on for a long time and if that's any indication of how long these things take we might not see any changes soon. The terrace and land would need to be rezoned, and releasing the park road reserve would require a law change. Johnson said even considering taking away any of the community's green spaces would cause far too much angst and anxiety, and the council had plenty of other options for housing to be getting on with. So we'll just see how that uh, how that looks and where that goes. Just a proposal at the moment. Dewindam's report also found the city did have sufficient land available to meet new housing demand for the next three years, so that's good news. However, nearly 70% of the new builds were three or four-bedroom houses, whereas the need was for smaller homes. Most of the 685 families on the social housing register wanted a one or two-bedroom house. The proposal to consider development of underused council land for more intensive development of smaller homes could be part of the solution, he said in a report councillors who voted against allowing the investigation um, were numbered in about half a dozen. So again, I'm, I'm thinking investigation's okay, um, but whether it's something that's, that's practical, we'll have to wait and see. This article from Miriam Bell from stuff.co.nz says the rise of the $1 million mortgages sparks an interest rate warning. Million dollar mortgages are becoming more common and there is a warning that it means interest rate increases will hit hard. New data from the property red site homes.co.nz showed that fifteen percent of all sales nationwide were for more than one point two five million in the last twelve months. The figure was even higher in Auckland, where thirty-seven percent of all sales were more than one and a quarter million, CoreLogic said. And in twenty twenty one alone, fifty-seven percent of Auckland sales were for more than a million compared to 33% five years ago. Homes.co.nz chief data scientist Tom Linton said that assuming a 20% deposit, this means significant numbers of people had taken on a $1 million mortgage. Not all buyers at that price point would be borrowing to that extent, but it's safe to assume that many have entered the market at this level of debt. The data from the Reserve Bank shows that $832 million of total borrowing of $8.9 billion in May was to people of a deposit less than 20%, so that's about a tenth, up from $515 million in May last year and 707 million in 2019. So really, what would happen if things change? Well, mortgage rates on a one to three-year fixed terms are in the two to three percent range, and while a one million-dollar mortgage might be serviceable at this rate, it was important to think about what it might mean in repayment terms when rates start to go up again. An analysis shows that if interest rates were to increase the level that was typical five years ago, monthly repayments for a median Auckland home could increase by almost two thousand dollars a month compared to where they are now. So that's just a, a warning there, and even uh, if we look at something like Christchurch, which is the lowest median price of all the main centres, with five ninety six, repayments would still go from two thousand and sixty five to three thousand and twenty eight per month. So we've just got to be aware when lending that uh, there will be changes should those interest rates go up. Speaking of Christchurch, affordable property in Christchurch will lure young Wellingtonians, economist Tony Alexander predicts. So the affordability of homes in Canterbury will eventually draw people from Wellington, especially young people, independent economist Tony Alexander predicts. Canterbury offers great affordability versus other major cities. As the city looks better, every quarter, in every way, it gets better and better. More young people are starting to move here, especially for the affordability. Alexander talked to staff in Christchurch before the first of four addresses he's giving in Christchurch, Auckland, Waikato and Wellington on the property market is speaking to a sponsored by NZ Home Loans, the Mortgage Advisors. He says, I think there's going to be a flow out of Wellington. Wellington is getting some severe image problems, so I think there's a flow, including to Canterbury University. And I noticed uh, on TV last night that I was watching uh, a large number of people uh, moving to the outskirts of uh, Christchurch, indeed because things are a lot cheaper indeed than some of the major centres. So just to reiterate what I said before, the median house price in Canterbury in May was 582000 And and uh, that compares to Wellington region's 882000 and over a million in Auckland. Also, um, Wellingtonians at the moment are moving further out of town to be able to afford to remain in the region. Uh, and... Uh, Tommy's Real Estate has just sold more than 100 townhouses off the plan in Kapiti without advertising them because the roading infrastructure is getting so much better now uh, and will be so much better once Transmission Gully is finished and some of the bypass roads go ahead. I'll just now go to an opinion piece by Daniel Dunkley. He says, Housing plan too little, too late for NZ's younger generations. And he refers to the spatial plan meeting at Wellington City Council. saying that the fraught meeting was monitored by exasperated younger generations on social media as their older opponents tried to row back the reforms. Among the groups campaigning to make building more difficult was the Heritage and Character Lobby, which argued against the merits of knocking down old homes for newer, denser accommodation. In effect, they argued that colonial homes built in the 1800s and early 1900s were so gorgeous that future Wellingtonians should suffer through a housing shortage to preserve their beauty. Their protest came despite a 30.3% increase rise in the median Wellington property price in the year to May, according to Real Estate Institute data, and an 8% increase in rent to a medium of about 600 per week over the last 12 months according to Trade Me. Now, not to mention the estimated 30,000 to 80,000 people expected to head to the capital to live over the next three decades. So some of those at the pre- present at the meeting could barely hide their indifference to young people's housing plight. If you want a house, you must save, you must work, you must ensure that you make good decisions and life choices. It doesn't come to you overnight, Councillor Sean Rush said. Now, putting aside, it isn't easy when the median rent $600 per week. A 20% deposit for the median Wellington home is $177,000, meaning a couple saving $2,000 a month would take 88 months or just over seven years to stump up that amount. Of course, house prices would be considerably higher by then. So really, it's uh, just a matter, I guess, a symptom of what's happening all over the country, that there's some of this uh, NIMBYism, that's the not-in-my-backyard. So... The NIMBYs, they say, in Wellington are willing to ignore the cold hard facts as well as the cold drafty conditions in many of the old homes. They'd rather turn the capital into a living museum than a thriving, functioning modern city. While NIMBYs are an international menace, nowhere has the housing problems on the same scale as New Zealand's major cities. That's just a bit of an opinion piece there, so made for some interesting reading on stuff. This real difference between the people who already have uh, what they need, so to speak, and those who are trying to get started. So that really does uh, make it somewhat tricky. So you're here on Property Matters. We're just going to go now to a little bit of music. This is Aerosmith with Dude Looks Like a Lady. That was Aerosmith with "Dude Looks Like a Lady." You're listening to Property Matters here on NPR Manawatu Peoples Radio Te Reo re or Nga Tangata or Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. It's nice having your company. Now, recently, the deadline has come about for healthy homes and landlords, and this is the deadline that's been looming now for a number of years. This article from NewsHub.co.nz says that the government relying on tenants to enforce healthy home standards, putting relationships with landlords and uh, tenants at risk. And this is according to Renters United. So landlords from now can be fined if their properties fail to meet the healthy home standards within 90 days of a tenancy starting, after a new law come into effect on July the 1st. But tenants say that landlords shouldn't be left to enforce the rules. The healthy home standards require rentals to have heating, insulation, ventilation, proper drainage and for unreasonable gaps to be closed. And from July the 1st, landlords have 90 days from the time a tenancy starts or if it's renewed. We're hoping the landlords are taking the initiative here, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said on Thursday. But it's up to landlords to conduct the Healthy Homes Assessment. If the tenants disagree with the assessment, they can take it up with the tenancy tribunal. So Housing Minister, Porto Williams, says if tenants find landlords aren't being compliant the opportunity to go to the tribunal is there. But Robert Whitaker from Renters United said, the government is relying on tenants enforcing the law on their behalf, and he warns that comes with a risk. The risk is, of course, that the relationship will break down afterwards, that the landlord and the tenant will no longer get on to the extent the tenancy can continue, he explained. Now I find that slightly unusual, uh, because tenants now have the power to continue renting a property by and large, uh, much more so than they used to have, so I don't think that they would necessarily um, look at a situation where the the relationship between landlord and tenant would break down to the extent that the tenancy can't continue. Anyway, landlords could take a hit too if they don't meet their obligations by the 90 day deadline. They could face damages of up to seven thousand two hundred dollars. Real Estate Institute of New Zealand spokesperson D Crooks says we think it's a pretty good incentive for your landlord to meet the requirements at the right time. Renters United is calling for independent assessors to be brought in, but Williams says there's a cost factor involved in that, and the Prime Minister wouldn't be drawn on it. By setting standards, we're trying to make sure that we're creating an understanding broadly about what needs to be done, she said. Standards set to make uh, the homes warmer, drier, healthier, etc., have been on the drawing board for quite some time. Now, with the fines, how those work. and it's about up to $7,200. It's a scale. So it starts at zero and works its way up. So it depends on uh, if you have your blatant people who simply don't care and have shown that uh, either in writing or text messages or or whatever, uh, they'll be right up the very high end of the scale if they've continually ignored requests from tenants to bring their house up to standard. But if it's a well-meaning landlord uh, who's done whatever they can and they're held up because of supplies or, or builders being able to get to the property, etc., then that would be at the lower end of the scale, I would suggest. So, the house prices have been looked at, they have been suggested that they will double in the next five years if net migration returns to pre COVID levels. So, ANZ has done some research, and this was on stuff.co.nz, saying, Uh, imagine COVID wasn't happening and we're getting the immigration as per normal, uh, they would suggest that uh, the house prices would double in five years. So that's quite incredible. Uh, Even if net migration fell by nearly 60% on pre-COVID levels, house prices would still increase almost three quarters by the end of 2026, if all other factors were held constant, uh, the bank economists say. So they looked at how immigration affects the economy and found its main impact was on the housing market via price inflation and building consents. Is so that's something just to consider there. That's quite a long article. I won't go into all of that right now. But the modelling was based on, on previous measures. So it just begs the question, what would the government do hypothetically uh, if they were to reopen for immigration knowing that that's going to be one of the major effects? Very interesting indeed. Also if you are looking for a house to buy just at the moment you might be a bit out of luck because would-be house buyers according to Miriam Bell from Stuff are facing an increasingly tough market with a number of houses down for sale by more than 30% year on year, the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand says. The real estate website's data showed there were almost 14,000 properties on the market in June which was a drop of 33.3%. On the 20,000 properties that were available to purchase in the same month last year, there were 14 record stock shortages in five—oh, sorry, 14-year record stock shortages in five regions, all of which had declines over 30%. And that's Coromandel down 59%, Nelson and Bay's down 58%, Canterbury 48%. Northland, 48, and Central Otago, down 34. So people just aren't selling in some of these regions. And, and of the 19 regions, only Gisborne had an increase in the number of homes available in a year earlier. As you're probably aware if you've listened to the show before, uh, in this area um, and around Palmer's North, Manawatu, Wanganui, uh, there is a, a real issue there with a, a shortage of properties indeed. Now, in the flip side of the coin, trying to create more properties, Catherine Harris from Stuff.co.nz has an article where she's talking about builders having to wait for up to eight months for some goods. And, uh, and that's one of the parts of, of a wider article that she has here. There were only 430 container ship visits to New Zealand ports in the last quarter of 2020, which was a fall of 34%. On on the importing side, Building Industry Federation Chief Executive Julian Lays said the waiting time for many building materials has extended dramatically. The new norm is six to eight months instead of the previous four weeks when purchasing any materials or components from structural timber to door handles to vanity tops, he said. Prices had hiked accordingly. Some steel products were up between 15 and 21%, concrete and cement products were up 7%, The prices for decking timber and plywood were up between six and twenty percent, so it's the old supply and demand side of things. So stockpiling is now common among builders, and while domestic timber manufacturing was largely back to full capacity, it was just not meeting demand. And shipping companies are charging more to get the goods into and around the country due to delays at the log jammed ports of Auckland. The group home builders are planning months ahead just to make sure they have enough materials. It's really ballooned out, so it's interesting to see how that's going uh, if you were getting a home built, it's, it's interesting to see how much more that would add on to the time from building start uh, through to completion, you would think it's more just an organisational thing behind the scenes for the builders um, to get onto that so um, that's something which uh, is, is tricky um, particularly in this area where there's a lot of building going on and trying to find land to build on is is particularly tricky. And that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, this is... Uh property matters you've been with greg watson it's been lovely having your company you can find this show on npr.nz it's on their website if you want to listen to any of the recent episodes they all have descriptions on there of what i've been talking about so you can pick and choose that's at npr.nz Two people's radio and just look up the show property matters otherwise you can find this where all good podcasts are found with a description of what's on the episodes there as well so it's been lovely lovely having your company here on NPR, talking property, and we look forward to catching up with you next week. I'm Greg Watson. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Two People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.